it's statistics not even wrong, but it's a bad argument. And she knows it too, because she thinks that people will leave. We won't have 90% as she claims in public schools if they have the option to leave. Yeah, it's like, it's like someone saying, you know, you're ruining my party. Why am I ruining your party? You're letting, you unlock the door so people can get out. <laughs> Welcome to Random Assignment. I am with, look, that's Corey DeAngelis. It's the real Corey DeAngelis. Uh, this, by the way, program is booming. Random Assignment, it is your, it is your, look, we got breaking news and everything that's coming up soon. This is your appointment viewing for everything education related, except, of course, when we're a little late. But let's forget about that right now. Uh, Corey DeAngelis from the Reason Foundation, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, it's a pretty crazy Supreme Court case went down in favor of school choice yesterday, which we should talk about. Yes, I am Bob Bowden from Choice Media, by the way, with the best weekly email blast in the business. We urge you to sign up today for the Choice Media Week comes every Friday, weekly email blast about education news. So that's my pitch for the day. But yes, this story about, uh, well, it's a, it all started with a woman named Kendra Espinoza in the state of Montana, of all places. And the state there passed a very modest program saying we're going to allocate $3 million statewide to these uh, tax credit scholarships, which basically would allow people to donate money to scholarship organizations, which would then give basically up to $500 is all. Even in a state like Montana, it's not a lot of money. Uh, $500 as tuition scholarships for parents who sought to educate their kids a different way than traditional public schools. Isn't that right, Corey? Yeah. So uh, Montana had this program that was enacted in 2015. And then in 2018, the program was struck down by their state Supreme Court because they saw that families were using the scholarship funds to go to private, uh, non-religious, but also religious private schools. And they have something in their state level constitution called the no aid clause which they argued uh, th that you, you know using the the program funding to attend a religious school uh, violated their no aid clause. So that ended up going to the U.S. Supreme Court, which was heard, I believe, in January, and they just ruled on it yesterday in a five-four decision in favor of school choice. And they just ruled that excluding religious schools, if you're going to have a private school choice program like Montana did, excluding religious schools is unconstitutional based on the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. In particular, it has to do with the free exercise clause uh, of the U.S. Constitution. So the Montana Supreme Court unconstitutionally prevented families from using the program to use religious private schools for their children. Obvious vi violation of the free exercise clause um, by discriminating also against religious groups, which is also a protected class according to the, the, the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution as well. So this uh, what this essentially means is that Montana families will be able to continue uh, using their scholarship program because the only thing that was keeping them from using their program was this state-level court decision that unconstitutionally prevented families and discriminated against religious families uh, from uh, choosing religious private schools for their children. And so some of my school choice and education reform friends who have been a little confused about this case, they'll say, wait a minute, didn't the U.S. Supreme Court already say school vouchers can be used at religious schools yeah. in the early 2000s? Wasn't there something called the Zellman decision, which said that uh, government it money is. and school choice programs could be used at, at, uh, at religious schools? And the answer is yes, that did resolve yeah. it on a federal level. But what remained was this other issue of state constitutions and what became known as Blaine Amendments, which were put into the 37 different state constitutions, including Montana. They had these things that became known as, it's kind of a general term, even if the word Blaine does not appear in the Montana state constitution. Mm -hmm. It's become a, become a general term for this former U.S. senator from Maine named Blaine, who uh, he wanted this to be a, a U.S federal amendment to the federal constitution failed in that effort uh, during the Grant administration. This is the late 1800s, folks. Uh, but nevertheless, these, these state constitutional issues remain. So even after Zellman said it was not a problem with the U.S. Constitution to give 
government money to religious mm -hmm. schools through school choice programs. The certain states had their own state prohibitions. That was resolved this week, essentially. And so we wanted to start up by showing you kind of how some of this was covered. Uh, MSNBC had their own take on it. And let's see that now. Yeah, and I want to hit on real quick just for the listeners what the, the argument was in the Zellman case in 2002. And basically the main idea here is that the funding goes to families. It's not direct funding from the government to religious institutions. It's money that goes to families and families can choose to send their kids to the government run schools or they can use that voucher to attend to send their children to a private religious or non-religious school. It's the same reason why uh, the Pell Grants for the higher education I was uh, just going to say uh, that. vouchers can can be used at religious institutions without violating the U.S. Constitution's, uh, uh, the uh, Establishment Clause in the First Amendment of the U.S. And that's been true, by the way, for years. Yeah. Like, you'll ask a school choice opponent, what about Pell Grants? I did this when I did the cartel movie no, 10 years okay ago. Those, right? Yeah, like I would say, are you against Pell Grants, which are for higher education? It's for universities, and people use them at places like, well, Notre Dame and Holy Cross and all kinds of colleges that are religious in nature. And none of these people have ever brought up that as a problem at all. And so often I would get like this dumbfounded silence when I would say uh, against Pell Grants. But anyway. They'll pivot to something else. But yeah, Pell Grants, GI Bill, even food stamps can be argued. You can use it for buying food at religious for religious ceremonies. But that's in fact, well, and further than that, you can use Medicare and Medicaid at religious Catholic, hospitals. Yeah, Catholic yeah. hospitals. So you can keep going on and on with these examples. Social security, I can even pay for a K through 12 education at a private religious school for my kid with social security dollars, which are public dollars, but it's not a separation of church and state issue because the money goes through individual families and then- Who are making the choices. Who can make the choice. Okay, so that's just the background for the listeners, but let's, let's look at how the media covered this case, uh, specifically MSNBC uh, pretty recently. Well, the Supreme Court has issued a pretty important a decision on freedom of religion, on the wall of separation between church and state. And what the court has done today in a 5-4 decision with Chief Justice John Roberts in the majority is lower that wall of separation. This involved a program in Montana that allowed people to give scholarships that could be used by parents to send their children to religious schools. After starting the program, which gave basically tax credits to people who wanted to contribute these scholarships, the state ended it saying, whoops, we can't do this. We have a provision in our state constitution that says that no state money can be used for, for churches or religious purposes. So it stopped the program. But today the Supreme Court said that's unconstitutional discrimination against religion. Now, Frankly, the, the, the line between what is acceptable and unacceptable use of government support for religion has been a very fuzzy one that the Supreme Court has moved around over the years. And I think it's safe to say that this decision moves it a little more in favor of churches. And it will probably doom about 30 other, 36 or 37 other laws or state constitutional provisions like Montana's that other states have that bar the use of government funds for religious purposes. Now, the details in the Supreme Court ruling, I think, will be interesting to see exactly where the court draws the line, whether there's still any any line left mm. between not giving uh, government money for strictly religious purposes. But here, this was money that went to parents who made the decision to send their children to schools or not to send their children to religious schools. So on the one hand, the media, gotta love the media. He does go back and forth between saying tax credits. He does mention that, but then he also calls it government, government money. money. It's not government money. What's it? What government money doesn't even exist? These are private dollars that are taken from us. Well, it's not even. It's not even. Yeah, it's not not even public dollars because it's a tax credit scholarship program. It's never been in a government account. It's never been in a government bank account or ledger as government money ever. These are basically just tax deductions. It's as I wrote a couple of years ago on this, if I may quote myself, yeah. uh, if you're going to call this government money, then your mortgage interest deduction, you ought to call that government money too. That's in your own bank account because you deducted it from your taxes. Or if you have children and you like have a deductions for dependents who are your children or something. That's, call that government money, too. This is just tax policy that's designed to encourage certain behavior that's part of tax policy. It doesn't make it government money. And the definition is it's never been in a government account anywhere. So yeah, anyway, so, yeah. 
So he does go back and forth uh, there a little bit. Just a fine point on this in case this isn't uh, already clear. While the Montana blame them. Well, the Montana program that was struck down by the Montana Supreme Court, which has now been that ruling overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court, the Montana program was tax credit, never government money. As we're saying, there are other places where it actually is government money, like yeah. a government voucher program you know, that right. actually would be in a government account paid as tuition to parents to use for private school. So it still has that value, too, in, in that regard. So there are, there are other states where it really is government money we're talking about. Yeah, and it doesn't matter because we have this Zellman versus Simmons Harris uh, uh, ruling in 2002 that said even if it is publicly funded, uh, it goes to the families, just like with Pell Grants, Social Security, uh, Medi Medicare, Medicaid, all these other things we already listed off. It's not a uh, a free a, a establishment clause issue. It's not a violation of the establishment clause because the money is given to families first and they're the primary beneficiary of those funds. And I just want to bring up that you're right. I like to bring up when Bob's right. Oh, almost yeah. all the time. Here's, here's the, uh, uh, ACSTOV win. It's a 2011 Supreme court case that involved a private school, uh, tax credit scholarship program in Arizona. And they very clearly state out that private funds remain private until they quote, come into the tax collector's hands. So because tax credit scholarships never enter the tax collector's hands, they are private by, by definition. Right. So to be clear, what, what this doesn't do is suddenly pass school choice programs in 37 states that had prohibitions called Blaine Amendments in their state constitutions that were every time someone would even talk about this, uh, someone would say, well, you can't even begin this legislation. It'll be struck down in three seconds because it's against our Blaine Amendment. Now, though, in those 37 states, if someone does propose a new school choice program, Opponents will have to think of some new reason to be against this, like draining money from, you know, distant schools <laughs> or something. They'll have to come up with something else, at least this time. They can't rely on this yeah. legal argument. Anymore. So this, yeah, this doesn't force school choice, as Chief, Chief Justice Roberts said in his, in his opinion, uh, in concurring opinion, that is, a state need not subsidize private education. So you don't have to have a school choice program is what he's saying. But if you're going to have a school choice program, if you decide to, to do so, it cannot disqualify some private schools solely because they are religious, which is, you know, Justice Roberts said a lot more succinctly, I think, what you and I were stabbing at. But that's 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 the bottom line right there. Um, uh, and so uh one of the champions of this issue for many years has been the attorney Dick Comer with the yeah. Institute for Justice many years. Uh, he argued this case before the U.S. Supreme Court and just found out this week that he won, which is pretty good. <laughs> and so I reached out to him, uh, Dick Comer, who's a great champion of school choice and, and a great legal mind about uh, kind of summing up what this what this decision means, and I got yeah. I, I, we're not going to try to overwhelm you too much too much, but I got a few sound bites from from Dick Comer on this. So here's what he told me. Cool, and I want to talk to you about Maine and New Hampshire after we listen to Dick Comer as well, okay. and get your thoughts on on those two states. But here's Dick Comer. In 2002, we uh, struck down the argument that the Establishment Clause. Uh, prohibits inclusion of religious schools. And yesterday, we struck down the idea that uh, state Blaine amendments can permit the exclusion of religious schools from school choice program. So those were the two primary legal barriers. And those doors are now open. And it's up to the people through their legislature to pass school choice programs, and they can know uh, that the Supreme Court says those programs can include the largest chunk of the private school marketplace, which are religious schools. And so I was talking with them and I had this idea that, yes, yeah, a lot of this sounds kind of legalistic and some people maybe their eyes glaze over when they hear <laughs> terms like, you know, establishment clause. <laughs> so I wanted to kind of get him to move him to a more kind of a layman's description. So that's that's what this next clip is. 
for those connected to the legal arguments, they're more accustomed to phrases like the Establishment Clause of the U.S. Constitution or Blaine Amendments of State Constitutions. But to ordinary laymen, what you'll hear most often is the phrase separation of church and state. We can't let taxpayer money or government money go to religious schools that would violate the separation of church and state. What is your kind of elevator answer to that? Well, first, um, I want to point out something that has been sort of obscured in the whole discussion of the Espinoza case. The Espinoza program doesn't use a dollar of public funds. It is, it uses scholarships that are generated by private donations. The same sort of private donations that people have been taking tax deductions for, for generations, ever since we had an internal revenue code it has allowed tax deductions for charitable donations. Including religious. Including, including, including charitable donations directly to religious schools and directly to churches. This gives uh, uh, tax credits for donations to scholarship funds. So I have to, it's kind of what we were saying before, but what amused me about that, not only, of course, is his passion, which, and it's always fun to listen to him talk, but, but the idea that uh, it's kind of something I hadn't thought about before, which is if you're against, you say, oh, I don't want this uh, government money or taxpayer credit, tax credit, scholarship types of money, you know, helping religion, that's a problem of separation of church and state. Well, what about regular religious contributions to build, to, to buy Bibles or, or to build a new sanctuary or to uh, pay for, you know, handouts with religious phrases on them. Like that's happened for decades or, or you know, more than a century, I would think. Maybe, maybe I don't know, maybe about a century based on when the tax, you know, we got, a, uh, we, got, we got the income tax passed. But it's like that's been going on for decades. So why would schools be some sort of thing? Well, we're going to draw the line there. Like, Tax credits that are going to go to schools are somehow bad, but tax credits or deductions that go to all kinds of other religious things are just shrug, normal. That was an interesting point I thought he made. But anyway, but then I also wanted to get him back on the subject of, uh, oh, what about other states, though, like Ohio or Indiana or Louisiana or other states where they actually do just have vouchers that actually are direct government money? And that's the third clip. Yeah, and I want to point out the logic of thinking of tax credit scholarships as as uh, public dollars, which they're not. Uh, state Supreme Courts have ruled this consistently. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled this way and uh, and concluded this in, 20, in just as recently as 2011. Uh, the logical conclusion of that is that all your money belongs to the government. There is no such thing as private money because, well, you could have spent some money on something and been taxed for it. So uh, since it could have went to the government and should have went to the government, in my view, then your money belongs to me. <laughs> We're only taxing you at X rate. We should tax you at a higher rate. But since we don't, that money belongs to us, the government. So, yeah, let's look at the final video from Dick Comer. As the Supreme Court said almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago in Zelman, we're not giving the money to religious schools. Um, we're giving the money to parents. And parents are choosing how they want to use that money in the exact same way that students and parents get money from the federal government and have since, I think, around 1973, have gotten Pell Grants, grants, free money, from the federal government that they can then use at any religious college they want. They can use it at all of any of the secular colleges that they want. But the point is, the money isn't given. The public funds aren't given to religious colleges or religious schools. They're given to us. <laughs> I know it's redundant. We it's just no different than what you and I both just said, Corey. But I, I just love hearing him talk. So there you go. And so yeah, what, I want to get your thoughts on Maine and New Hampshire 
the way I've thought of this, uh, and I've talked to a couple people already, is that Maine and New Hampshire have things called town tuitioning programs. And I know you know what they are, but for the listeners, um, if you live in a certain town that, and you're not residentially, you don't have a, a public school that you're residentially assigned to, you automatically get a voucher to either go to a different uh, town's public school, or you can use that voucher to pay for private school tuition and fees. But the thing is, in Maine and New Hampshire, these two programs say you can only use this voucher at religious or non-religious private schools. You can't use these vouchers at uh, relig religious private schools. So uh, based on the, the Espinoza case, my take on this is that those, those two programs need to start allowing families immediately to take those vouchers to um, religious private schools uh, just based on um, Robert's. Based on the quote you just cited from Robert's that you just tweeted. Yeah, that same okay. quote, right. If you're going to have a voucher program, you don't have to, but if you're going to have one, uh, you cannot disqualify some private schools solely on the basis of religion. No, I, th I think you're spot on. In fact, Vermont also has a similar program too, where they where they allow uh, the same kind of thing. And it's 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 funny. I was kind of I looked into at one point in time when it seemed like there was a possibility that Bernie Sanders might end up with the nomination for the Democrats. That uh, I wanted to see if he'd ever said anything against. Because it's a very popular program in Vermont. Yeah, and I yeah. thought, oh, if he ever opposes, turns out he never he's never talked about it, never taken a position. Because you here you have a liberal state, Vermont, and you know, Bernie Sanders is their, one of their U.S. senators, for, for goodness yeah. sake. And he is, that has not been a target of his. He doesn't go railing against that because parents like it. Okay, so let's move on, everybody. So, you know, as uh, for... Oh, we, pardon? We, well, we haven't hit on uh, the union's response to, to all of this. Oh, yeah, okay, go ahead. Uh, so let, uh, so uh, this this has been pretty uh, blew up on Twitter. A lot of responses to the president of the American Federation for Teachers, the one of the two national teachers unions. I think it's the second largest teachers union. It's more the urban teacher union United versus States. the suburb teachers union. AFT, yeah. Randy Weingarten and AFT is more the cities. Suburb. Yes. So here's what she said. She is mad about the Espinoza decision. Never in more than two centuries of American history has the free exercise clause of the First Amendment been wielded as a weapon to defund and dismantle public education. My first question was, if your schools are doing so great, why would giving low-income families an exit option be uh, result in the defunding and dismantling of public education? That, mean, that looks like an, an admission that you're not very um, confident in the product that you're providing to the American public. And maybe maybe families should be able to escape. But then also, uh, why does she want to discriminate against religious families? The Supreme Court just ruled that not allowing uh, religious, uh, fam religious families to take scholarships to religious schools is discriminatory. It's a clear case of discrimination against religious groups, which is a protected class under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. So what my yeah, that's that's my other question. Why? Why aren't you concerned about religious liberty? Uh, you know, great minds think alike. My, my, right before we went on live, I tweeted out saying, oh, uh, letting people leave is dismantling. I, I, I tweeted. I was like, there, there we go. Look at that. I'm like, let, letting people out. Oh, we can quote me. Hey, <laughs> hey, Randy, regarding your Espinosa comment. You Allowing said, people to leave is akin to dismantling. You said it, not me. So anyway, we were I mean, basically it, it, making the same point. It's a clear, it's a clear admission that oh, uh, you know, if people have the option to leave, they're going to escape. But then on the other hand, she consistently says ninety percent of kids choose public schools in the United States, which the, the statistics not even right. It's eighty-two percent. Yeah. Since she considers charters to not be public schools, she classifies them as private. The statistics not even wrong, but it's a bad argument. And she knows it too, because she thinks that people will leave. We won't have 90% as she claims in public schools if they have the option to leave. Yeah, it's like it's like someone saying, you know, you're ruining my party. Why am I ruining your party? You're letting you unlock the door so people can get <laughs> out. Can leave. <laughs> like, like, really? So you're dismantling or whatever, you're ruining my party because people are allowed to leave? Anyway.
Looks like they also had a press release on this. Oh, yeah, 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 The yeah. ruling threatens public education and religious liberty. What? If you let them, if you let them out, that's going to threaten threaten it's our little... threaten my monopoly. That's essentially the argument here. If I was a uh, Walmart and the Supreme Court for whatever reason said that people can take their food stamps elsewhere, I would be upset about that ruling too. But thank thankfully, already in the, in in the United States, we can take our food stamps to Walmart or Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or or anywhere else. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, and then again, the Medicare and Medicaid <clears throat> argument and and along with the food stamps and along with the Pell Grants and all those things. Yes, all kinds of ways we, the, the consumer is able to choose something. Um, okay, we ready? Ready to Tim move on? Scott. Tim Scott, okay. what did you say? So yeah, so with the, pre the President of the United States, as many of you know, if you've been watching our, our, our live stream and, and listening to our podcast, uh, started talking about school choice and then so has Vice President Pence and so have a few more politicians. And what's that starting? We're starting to hear that actually kind of reverberate in the media space. So we have another example of that uh, this week. When it comes to the Democrats on those issues in terms of education, uh, in terms of school choice, or things it. that they could, could do at it. the local level, are they not doing enough? They're actually, they haven't even started the conversation. This country, we spend $770 billion on public education. We have the poorest kids low, with the lowest performance. Think about this. In, in Detroit, one of the numbers in the last five years, in reading, science, and math, the numbers were under 20% for two out of the three categories for black kids. In Average on average in this nation, white kids are in the 70 percentile. Just think of the chasm between the teens in the 70s. But in New York City, there is a lady named Eva Moskowitz who runs the Success Academy, public charter schools. She gets less than I think it's half the money that the public schools in New York City gets. What's, what's the performance of her kids? 81 percent minority. Their scores are in the 70 percentile range. In other words, she is proving that the poorest kids in New York City, given the right environment for less money, produces equal to or better results than other kids around the state of New York. We are not having a problem based simply on resources. We're not having a problem based on zip codes. We are having a problem based on imagination. We're having a problem based on the circumstances that the adults find the kids, not that the kids find themselves. So if we teach to where we want them to go, as opposed to dumbing it down, we'd get high-performing students and high-performing schools in the poor zip codes. We've got a guy in Charleston, Ben Navarro, who started a small school. All of the parents make less than $30,000, 95% uh, free lunch, and literally, his kids are in the top 20% around the country in two years. We can do it, but if you build a school system for adults and teachers' unions defend it, instead of for kids where they have no union to defend them, and that is why we produce the low levels in education, which then has a correlation to the levels of employment, which then has a correlation to the levels of income, and that has a correlation to the wealth. All right. Excuse a little promotion at the end there, but choice media. between you and me, like I think he, I think he might be president someday. This is I'm using my clenched jaw speaking style, so like only you'll hear me, Corey. Yeah, I yeah, think no, Tim no. Scott. Yeah. Maybe he he actually could be a nominee someday of the party. But anyway, what did you think about that? Yeah, I mean he's right. He and I like how he pointed out Success Academies uh, knocking out of the water in New York um, as well, and he he also did mention that. The charter schools in New York City and other uh, areas in the United States tend to get a lot less money than the traditional public schools, and they either get the same or better results, uh, especially if you're looking at non-test score outcomes, uh, such as reports of satisfaction, safety, and educational attainment. Um, but my latest report with uh, Patrick Wolf actually looked at this as well, and he's right that in New York City, the, the charter schools per pupil get about $5,400 less than the residentially assigned or traditional public schools in New York City that are run by the government, uh, which is about 20% less uh, for the charter schools. Um, so I'm glad he pointed that out as well, because that's often lost in the debate 
and something we like to talk about a lot that people may have these discussions about charters versus TPS as if they're getting funded at the same levels and they're, they're just not. And it's never, again, I'm, I'm broken record on this, but you look at the credo study on charter schools, any study of charter schools, they never mention the fact they get less money. It's as if, it's as if it doesn't matter. Same with, you know, same with pretty much anybody that opposes school choice in any way, they will pretend as if it's the same amount of money and compare on that basis. And I just think that's crazy. That's why I have my fully funded school choice hashtag. Like it's, <laughs> it's all those minuses. Bring, bring that up again. What you just showed a second on that, on that, I mean, that uh, chart you had. Uh, yeah, I already, already. Uh, oh, you got it right. Okay, right. But anyway, the point is, is it's all, they're all minuses. You're all, no, the point is yeah, you've never really are. done a fair school choice test in the United States. Not once. Yeah, and the and, average across the 14 cities we looked, by, looked at was about a 27% uh, lower funding amount per pupil for charter schools. Enormous, enormous disparity, right? Uh, yeah, so that's uh, that's uh, huge. And um, I wanted to point out that, uh, I mean, yeah, when, when people are talking about this, I saw a recent interview with Julian Vasquez Heilig, who's the dean at the uh, University of Kentucky, which, uh, you know, we've, we've had the pleasure of being on stage with at Freedom Fest a couple of years ago in discussions about school choice. And one of the, what, one of his main arguments with the discussion with Diane Ravitch was, well, you know, some reforms, you know, uh, and he, he did this on stage with us when he was talking about the credo studies. He was like, well, it's only like a fifth, uh, you know, a 5% of a standard deviation. That's not, that's very small. It's not, it's not that big. There are these other reforms that we could do instead that would be better, you know, uh, cost effective for the bang for the buck that we're getting. And my first response is, well, 5% of a standard deviation when you're looking at education reforms is not small. It's about, you know, 36 days of additional learning according to Credo's formula. Uh, but then also the charter school reform is different in that it costs less than all these other reforms that he's pushing for. So you're saving money and getting better outcomes um, and the reforms that he's calling for cost more money and perhaps they get a little higher, but it doesn't mean they're more cost effective. Well, sure. And it also, you just, you know, you hope what, you know, you hope that those, these reforms are implemented well and, you know, I don't know, uh, furthermore, to, e e even with such reforms, there are all kinds of reasons for school choice that has nothing to do with top-down policy. Like my kid is getting beaten up every yep, day. Exactly. And a top-down yeah. policy doesn't exactly change that. Yeah, and, and perhaps we should have gotten some clips from this interview. Maybe we'll do it next week to kind of, you know, just respond to his arguments. Uh, but yeah, there was a lot of, um, you know, just kind of hand-waving in the discussion and things that he was saying that just uh, weren't true in, in the school choice debate. So maybe we could we can bring those videos into the discussion next week. But we also have a story coming out of uh, Minnesota, St. Paul, uh, the school, school board voted in a five to one vote to remove police officers from high schools. Uh, and we've talked about this a little bit. That um, was step one. Yeah. Step one of the St. Paul thing is they said, OK, look, we uh, we now realize police are terrible. You know, I, I've never seen a school where they just have police for no reason at all. I mean, someone maybe show me examples where these, you know, perfectly safe environments where they just kind of have actual uniform police officers just kind of for fun or just for no reason. Usually there's a, some sort of reason the police get there in the first place. Mm -hmm. But anyway, step one was this. They said, okay, yeah. this is new. This is BLM era. We now need, you know, realize that, you know, police are, you know, they don't all necessarily say police tend to be racist. Uh, some of them will just say, oh, that's not the environment we want for our school. Uh, our focus should be on student achievement. This one uh, board member said, and for all of our students to achieve, they need to be free from trauma. And she was linking the police presence to trauma rather than the lack of a police presence to trauma, which you could argue is also possible. But anyway, so this was step one. They vote to remove. Yep. And I'll just add, you know, I, I have mixed views about the policing on campus thing. Obviously, there's a benefit of security, but then the cost of, you know, uh, you're more likely to get a felony and then it could be a prison like environment, which I don't which seems kind of odd for me. I don't want kids in a prison like environment. But then as you as you've pointed out, you know, what if there's a school shooter that comes there needs to be someone to defend 
the children. So, that's, I mean, again, I think that's a good argument for school choice because there's no top-down policy, one size fits all that that's going to fix all of these, um, uh, you know, unintended consequences on either way. I think a good yes. me meeting in the middle could be private security yeah. maybe, instead of, instead well, of yeah, or I, so, yeah, the, 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 right. The point is, is that, yeah, I, the point is, is that I'm not advocating for one size fits all <laughs> policy either, that these places all change. And e even a particular school might, might, be more dangerous one year than it was last year and then might suddenly become less dangerous and it would call for different policies. Sure. Yep. So the school board voted to remove five to one police officers from schools in, in St. Paul. But then here's the more recent response. Uh, yeah. a, an African-American leader responded saying St. Paul, 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 uh, Paul, 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 School board members who voted to remove school resource officers, which are police officers essentially, will have blood on their hands if there's school violence. So right. it looks like uh, this person would agree with you, Bob, that uh, this, you know, this is this this could have the unintended consequence of a lot more danger in the schools, especially if if there is, you know, when schools restart, if there's a school shooting and there's no one there to defend anyone. Right. This is Tyrone Terrell. He's the president of the African-American Leadership Council there in St. Paul. And look, I'm no expert on how safe different St. Paul schools are. Please. I don't know. I have no idea. But what I'm what what I'm a little suspicious about and, and, and tell me if you agree with this, Corey, is that like this sudden assessment is in response to, you know, a Black Lives Matter movement pertaining to, you know, what was apparently, you know, the, the George Floyd matter, which I realized was also in Minnesota, but but that they didn't know this before. It's suddenly, in other words, suddenly all these protests because of George Floyd made these made these school board members like that's the catalyst for them to reassess the safety scenario of their schools. It seems like an odd catalyst for me. It seems like if they were dangerous, if if the police were unnecessary kind of authoritarian figures, if they are that now, <laughs> seems like they would have been that before. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, may, there are. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there's two, two ways to look at this, right? One one way to look at it is it could be a kind of a political move on on the part of the school board. And maybe they felt political pressure to uh, to kind of um, respond to policing. And, you know, you had the whole defund the police movement going on these past few weeks. And, uh, you know, just a lot of uh, kind of pushback against police and kind of the uh, politically correct thing to do is to also say that you're against against police. And one way to do that is to say, well, you should get away from our students as well. But on the other hand, uh, I, I can, I can, see, you know, events like this that happen in the public could be just a catalyst to wake people up. Maybe they did always no, know that's that. that's true. Fair enough. You know, so so. It, it, and it, it could be for some board, board members, it was one thing for other board members, it was another thing. Right. But the larger point here is that is that this is a, a member of the African-American Leadership Council who's saying using the term blood on their hands, the phrase blood on, on their hands. So this is another yet another reminder of this one size fits all systems cause fights point. If you have a one, we got to all we got all force everyone into this one paradigm for education. And look, people are going to you know, these kinds of disagreements are, you know, Hap going to happen more and more as these kinds of divisive issues come, including some later in the program here that we're going to talk about. So it's kind of part of this theme of of yeah, you got to you got to force everyone into this one policy, and you know what? what it's a yet another fight has ensued. This time, almost murder being referenced, blood on their hands, or manslaughter, I guess you could say, by an African American leadership council guy who says getting rid of the police is terrible. I mean, I, so anyway. I thought yeah, it was interesting. And, uh, I want to I bring up something I just remembered from the Julian Vasquez Heilig interview with Diane Ravitch that he got wrong because it slipped my mind earlier and I kind of just moved on. Uh, but we brought up the credo studies that use matching procedures. They try to compare apples to apples as much as possible. And one of the things that they do is they control for, you know, if you're a free or reduced lunch student, if you are a certain race or ethnicity, you try to uh, create your virtual twin in the public schools. And they use a, a peer, a twin peer a model. Yeah, yes, to find someone. Right. And, and one aspect of their methodology, which is really good to try to isolate the effects of the, of the schools themselves and not the background of the students, 
is that they match students who were in the same residentially assigned to the same traditional public school. And because of that, they have, you know, they grew up in, in, in similar neighborhoods. And that's just a way to get a, a stronger match and to say that this, this other, you know, virtual twin is actually much like you. And if you were to just match someone to a, who would have went to, who grew up and was assigned in a different neighborhood to a different school, that you're less likely to be identical to that student on, on average. And so what he argued in his video was that he said that, you know, Credo was, uh, was comparing apples to oranges in his view because they did that, because they only looked at schools that had kids go to, to, to uh, charters and traditional public students from the same school. You're saying he, he was defending the random he, assignment model in that interview. That's no, 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 he wasn't. He was, oh. he was saying that. He was criticizing. I thought you were saying he was criticizing Credo for not using random assignment model. No, no, no. Okay. It's worse than that. It's worse than that. He was saying that if you're if you're going to match and you and you're you're restricting the match to students that were in the same public school together, he was saying that 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 gets you further away from the truth somehow than if you were to count you know one kid in one neighborhood and compare to them them to a, a student you know way. Uh, that was that was assigned to another residentially assigned school. So what you want to do is right. make them as similar as possible. And he was arguing the opposite that you should. He was saying you should art you should include all traditional public schools and compare them to all the charter schools, which is by definition comparing apples to oranges. A different student populations. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. fact, I think he loses if you do that too. But just as an aside, I, because of because people have long made the argument that cherry picking, uh, you know, the, the, the more engaged parents are more likely to, to some extent, Robert Pondicio in his book about Success Academy says this too. It's all, it's valid, I think, that if you tend to be a, a more engaged parent, then you tend to be more likely to sign up for a charter school. I think that's, so I think his, what you're saying about his preferred model now sounds like it takes, like it's even worse news for him in the results, but. Yeah, his, his method gets you further from the truth and actually compares apples to oranges because he's comparing kids in different neighborhoods is what he would like to do. What he would like to do is what a lot of charter school opponents do is just compare the overall average of test scores in the public sector, which on average could be serving more advantaged students to the overall average of test scores for the charter school sector, which could be serving less Oh, not even within a city. He's saying He's not even within a city. Oh, I see. Oh, I see. All, I all the traditional public schools. He, right. He wants to write. He wants to really... Them to the now system. I'm understanding it. That's, I thought he wanted to compare yeah. all the charter to all the district within a city. You're saying he wants to compare all the charter to all the district in a whole state, which would include wealthy suburbs and stuff like that to help boost his district yeah. numbers. I got yeah. it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, By definition, right. comparing apples to oranges. Got it. <laughs> all right. Well, um, so I wanted to talk about this now, which is uh, this, uh, uh, fights. So we're talking, you know, uh, a lot of kids aren't in school, it's, although, it's, you know, summer, I guess. But pe people are talking about, as we've talked about on this program, parents and teachers not wanting to return to school in the fall. A lot of new fights about that this week, starting with Fairfax, Virginia, where we saw a Washington Post story about a revolt against the fall plans and teachers there saying they're going to refuse to teach in person. OK, just in case you thought, for example, that the management of, uh, you know, schools would actually be the superintendents and they would be in charge. Well, no, not so much. Uh, this says, well, a day after one of the nation's largest school systems announced its proposal for fall learning, teachers within the Fairfax County Public Schools, this is near the District of Columbia in Virginia, rose in revolt and refused to teach in person as the plan demands unless officials revise their strategy. So the superintendent had announced a hybrid learning program, one of the first concrete strategies released by schools nationwide in an email. Under the plan, he wrote families uh, would be able to choose between 100% virtual learning or part-time in-person schooling. Uh, but I guess to the, some extent that would require some teachers to show up to that in-person schooling for the number of parents that chose that option. And this uh, drew... Well, almost immediately drew criticism, it says, from, you know, uh, from educators, uh, including the 
Fairfax County Federation of Teachers, the Fairfax Education Association, the Association of Fairfax Professional Educators, asking their members to select the distance learning option en masse uh, until administrators work with association leadership anyway. So it's this massive revolt and fight. Are you able? Were you able to open that story? Or I guess well, no, it was the Washington well, Post. Well, look, look what happens. I'm not buying your oh, game. Okay. I'm not doing it. That's why right. I just put this up. We'll get you a screenshot next time. So that's all playing out. Meanwhile, in a very different place in Texas, the teachers union there may strike over their COVID-19 precautions, it says, according to something called reformaustin.org, whatever that website is. The president of the Texas branch of the AFT union says that going on strike is an option if they're forced back into the classroom this fall without proper precautions for COVID-19. And so I say this not to uh, brand myself as a you know, epidemiologist or an expert on viral transmission. I say this simply to, to once again highlight, you know, we could have all, a bunch of elements here. Um, we're going to get to even more later in the program to engender a new school choice revolution. We have the Espinoza, Espinoza decision that we just talked about. Yep. We have uh, some of these issues of the virus and, and huge fights forming, you know, strikes being threatened about just opening the schools again. Because if you don't do it this way or that way, or, you know, we, we say there should be masks, or we say this kid should be this far apart, or we say all these other things. And so this could be yet another driver of a massive revolution in how parents think about choice. Yeah, I mean, I don't care if teachers strike if families have the power to vote with their feet with their children's education dollars. The problem is when teachers strike and the customer, the taxpayer, and the families are the ones getting screwed. Right. That's that's the problem. So add and this to the police debates, whether there should be police in school or not. We just saw in Minnesota, obviously pretty you know, vitriolic language happening there on that issue. We have this virus issue, pretty vitriolic language about that in both Virginia and Texas, and I'm sure many places. And yeah, so, and, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, the main, main takeaway here is the money should follow the child because... There is no one best way to reopen, right? And what do we what what do they mean in Texas by proper precautions? Does that just mean it has to be virtual learning 100% of the time? And I mean, you look at Fairfax, they offered two options to their families. At least they gave them some options, I guess. But one option is in person 2 days a week, the rest of the time is in in independent learning, do it yourself right. the rest of the time. And the other option was for four days of virtual learning with the teacher and the, the other day is still uh, nothing, nothing for, for this, the families because it's a kind of an off day for the teachers to reset. And okay. so either way, so, you're only getting up to a maximum of four days in instruction, even if you're uh, doing the virtual instruction, but the, okay. the families let's, are still let's paying, skip, paying uh, let's, the property taxes. Let's skip to the next story. And this will be yet another, yet a third issue. So we have fights over police in schools, fights over what to do about the virus, and then do the next one, Corey. Something the Seattle Times came up, I think. Uh, yes. So there's a, a, you know, Seattle school is, uh, you know, supporting queer youth identity by uh, renaming, you know, it, there's talks about renaming after a LGBT. TQ plus leader, uh, and there's among other reforms here. And look, my my main takeaway, as everybody knows, is you know uh, I don't care what you name your school, right? I I don't care. But obviously, the reason we're pointing this out is there might be some other people who care about the names of the schools. There's there's people who care about the current names of schools because of um, you know things that have happened in the country's history. Uh, and so I think this is also just a reason that we need to have choice and we shouldn't force people to pay for particular, uh, you know, schools and curriculums that they inherently disagree with. This is the main idea behind Neil McCluskey's Cato Institute battle map, public school battle map, that the idea that there's so many cultural, you know, um, uh, disagreements in public schools today that that force inherent conflict over several different issues. And this is just another one of those issues where there will be disagreement in the community about it. And the obvious, the obvious uh, fix here is still fund education for everyone, but don't force 
families to send their children to a particular school, let that money follow the child to the school that works best for them. And I want to say just again, I don't, I don't care who you name the school after, um, if, if it's an LGBTQ plus leader. I'm just saying that there might be some, some pushback from particular groups. Yeah. So, so to be clear, I, again, if there, if in a school choice, a model, there, there's a, there was a school for gay kids in Atlanta. I think it might still be open. I'm fine, fine with, I'm personally fine with something like that. I'm fine. But, but let me, let me just quickly give you one detail about this Seattle story, which is that, which is this, it says any new curriculum proposed for English or social studies must include significant historical milestones such as the Compton Cafeteria Riots, Stonewall Riots, 1987 Second National March on Washington for Lesbian and Gay Rights, and the contributions of prominent queer or LGBTQ plus identified people. So that it's not just the renaming, it's that curriculum in English and social studies must include significant historical references to what I just read. So I'm personally not against it, but if someone yeah, personally it, it, believes that that's not their value system. Uh, I, 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 so, all right. So the culture wars is number three. So we did, we did fights about police in public schools. We did, uh, we did fights about how to handle COVID-19 in schools. Now we have fights about culture wars in schools. Not now it's been, it's been building. But but this culture war thing to me is got is in a whole new phase. I mean, there was kind of a phase one when it was just about like evolution versus creationism or what to say about sex ed, you know, free condoms, stuff like that, or like how to teach, you know, global warming or climate change or what to say about some of those stuff. People parents may disagree. It seems to me to have entered a new phase of the culture war part of this, much more of an indoctrination phase where you have you know, transgender declarations will be taught by schools as valid and they uh, are to be instantly believed anytime any person says they have switched, they are no longer the previous gender that they were yesterday. Uh, or, well, the 1619 Project stuff where America is being branded by some public schools as kind of essentially evil in its initial kind of creation story that America is about repression fundamentally rather than, rather than a country that was born flawed but had some great ideas and is moving toward a more perfect union um so you know we have to tear down all the george washington statues and the thomas jefferson standards because we have to like tell children that they represent hate and there's to me there's like a almost you know when i was a kid and i might have said this before but the like the concept of freedom and free speech used to be owned by the left that was you know in Woodstock, you had Richie Haven singing the song called Freedom. That was like a leftist kind of idea back then. It now seems as if it is uh, the, the kind of uh, requirements on groupthink are being more and more indoctrinated by public schools all the time. And, and that these, some of these issues I'm talking about it are, are, are proof of it. And that, um, you know, this will be a yet another issue that will drive even more school choice in, in, in this three-pronged thing I'm kind of laying out here. And so, I mean, if you just read Kendra Espinosa, to go back to the beginning of our show, she says, actually, I have a quote pulled up here. What does she say about, what does she say about why she wanted to, uh, to have a, a, diff, a, a, a religious school for her kids in Montana that led to this decision? Quote, we are a Christian family, and I want those values taught at school. Our morals as a society come from the Bible. I feel we are being excluded simply because we are people of religious background. That is the lead plaintiff for the case that was just announced yesterday by the U.S. Supreme Court, which ties into yeah. all these other issues. Go ahead, I mean, it, it makes that argument much stronger for school choice when you have introduced into the curriculum uh, things that religious groups might be, uh, you know, have issue with their children. And you could always say, oh, well, you can pay out of pocket for a private school, but those people have to pay for public education for everyone. And it kind of, it's kind of similar to, I mean, if you look at Chief Justice Roberts' language here, he said, a state need not subsidize private education, but once the state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify some private religious, some schools because they're religious. But what if we what if we took that a step further, just changed a couple words here, and instead said, a state need not need not subsidize education, but once a state decides to subsidize education, it cannot disqual disqualify some schools solely because they are private. So if you're gonna well, if you're going to fund education 
And I think, uh, yeah, Neil McCluskey and I have made this argument before that even, you know, this was about if you have a, a school choice program, but in a, in a way, there is a constitutional argument to be made that uh, school choice, if we're going to fund education for people and, and if taxpayers are funded, you know, uh, uh, forced to fund education and, and if their students are compelled to attend some type of school, you can make an argument that if you don't have school choice, you're discriminating against religious people too, especially if, you know, you have uh, certain curriculums that are in place that they're inherently against. Um, many, many states, uh, many states, of course, as we talk about, they, you know, do have private school choice programs like North Carolina and Louisiana and Indiana and, and Ohio and Wisconsin. And there are a number, there are a handful of these states, but most states don't. And even in people that live in the states that do have these programs are often, the programs are means tested, which means you might make too much money to qualify, even though you might think you're not even close to being rich, you might not qualify for those programs, or you might not live in the town where the programs are allowed to exist and you're in some other place where the programs don't exist. Uh, and so, or you may not be zoned to a school that's called an F rated school. And so that's why you're not eligible for this private school, but most states don't even have these at all. So, that, so, so the Espinosa decision, you know, is important. It has its place to grow the school choice programs. But what I'm talking about here, Corey, is something that's nationwide, which is these issues of police issues and virus issues and culture war issues are in every state. I think we are on the precipice of some sort of whole new era like like where micro schools of the prenditype model or just homeschooling homes just independent homeschool collectives that may not even be organized that much might just start taking up enormous percentages with you know half of the Houston parents not wanting to send their kids back to school in the fall what are all these these millions and millions of parents we're talking about for all these different reasons might be changing their thinking about education and how it's delivered. Well, I so, think you're right. I think you're right with your three-pronged approach. There's a, there's kind of this perfect storm going on that can really push people to say, why are we funding systems when we can fund students? Why should I have to pay for the government-run school when the teachers aren't going to school, they're striking over having to work? If the schools just aren't reopening and they're not educating my children right now, if I'm doing all the work, why don't I get some of that money back? Or why are you... Why are you <laughs> Why are you taking my money away from me in the first place? Why don't I get a rebate on my property taxes or something? Or why don't I get an education savings account to use at a micro school, to use for homeschooling expenses, to use at a private school that that actually opens up and actually starts providing some at least some type of very meaningful virtual education for my children? Um, I think people are starting to figure that out, and we're seeing all of these polls, as you said. Uh, and as we talked about over the last few weeks, a lot of families are saying they don't want to send their kids back to brick and mortar schools. So yeah. I think they're, I think families are starting funny. to figure it out. You, some of these parents sometimes get like accused or attacked for like, you're draining money from the, you keeping your kid out of public school are draining money from the system. And these parents are like, draining money? I'm paying taxes <laughs> for education and so, yeah, just and like you. How am money. I draining money? Yeah. I'm actually, my kid is taking less money than yours and I'm paying the same tax rate you are. How am I the one draining something when I'm actually paying more, you know, I'm actually paying the same in taxes and getting less out of the system. And that, that whole line of reasoning assumes that the money belongs to the system and not the actual child for their education. I mean, the, the money isn't supposed to be meant for a jobs program and to protect a monopoly. No, the money is supposed to be able to, to, to follow the child to, so that they can actually get a, a good education. Um, so yeah, we-, we well, One last a, thing, yeah, but, but we only have a couple of minutes left, I guess in our hour, but I wanted to talk about the National School Choice Week. Uh, well- Oh, and I wanna hit one thing, a question in the comments real quick. Okay. I thought this was a good question. Anyone gonna talk about, I'm, we might've talked about this last week about the California bill that's going through uh, the legislature trying to freeze school funding for uh, non-classroom-based charter schools, which we've seen in other places like Oregon and Pennsylvania. California is doing a similar thing. It passed through their like finance review committee, but it still needs to go through the House and the Senate and, and be signed by the governor to actually go into law. But it's again, they're fighting to protect the monopoly because families are saying, we want virtual education. What this would do would be to prevent those additional students from being counted on the enrollments 
of those virtual schools. So those virtual schools for taking new students wouldn't be compensated for doing so, which is a completely backwards way of doing doing things if you want to incentivize schools to actually serve kids. Uh, I, w I wanted to say, but yeah, uh, before we, we go, our friends at National School Choice Week, by the way, it's schoolchoiceweek.com. Many of you guys know about this group and have participated in their events. They, in the last week, they had this announcement, which, uh, well, reads as follows. We believe all Americans should do their part to curb the spread of COVID-19. That's why today we're requesting our partners and participants not plan in-person events during National School Choice Week 2021. This is January of next year they're talking about. We cannot in good conscience provide support, assistance, or materials for such events in 2021. You know, my uh, uh, my, my personal view, it seems like, it seems like a little it. far away, I guess, but maybe, I don't know, maybe they know what they're doing. I mean, I don't know. What if there? What if there's a vaccine in uh, yeah. September or something? I, I think it's unlikely. I'll admit. Hey, we'll get some awesome uh, virtual events. We'll uh, we'll uh, we'll have our random assignment podcast. Hey, that'll be that week. Boom, that'll be our oh, that'll podcast. be great. That'll replace all of next. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But anyway, we did want to just let people know about that in case uh, in case they have planned events in the past and we're planning on doing it again next year. Um, I guess it will need to be online. Cool. Well, we're up at an hour and. Uh, you know, we had a lot of stuff to talk about. Uh, it's good to talk to you as always, Bob. And this is the Random Assignment Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for coming again. And we'll see you next week.